welcome to the Frontside Podcast, the place where we talk about user interfaces and everything that you need to know to build them right. My name is Charles Lowell, developer here at the Frontside, and uh, with me also is Taras. Hello, Taras. Hello, hello. Today, we're going to be continuing our conversation uh, about platforms as always, but in particular, the, the pillar of your platform that has to do with how you collaborate on code. It's an important one. And so we're, you know, we're spending some time on it. Um, and with us to talk about this today is Joe LeBlanc, who is a senior software engineer at TrueLink Financial in our very own beloved Austin, Texas. Hey, Joe. Hi. Thanks for coming on uh, on the show. Um, we're going to be talking about collaboration, and I was thinking we could kick off the discussion talking about pull requests because that's typically one of the ways that we um, collaborate on code. That's really uh, where the rubber tends to hit the road. You have particular interest in uh, the dynamics of a pull request. What experience kind of led you to that interest? Part of my background has been doing a lot of work as a freelancer. And uh, when you work as a freelancer or do agency work, uh, a lot of times you are either the, the only software developer that is around or you're working with maybe one or two other people. And uh, I didn't get a lot of opportunity for pull request reviews um, while I was in that space. And then when I moved to... Uh, a full-time job at a place where I was one among maybe half a dozen or a dozen engineers, uh, that's when I really began to uh, get interested in how I could be better at giving pull request reviews and also submitting pull requests that people want to review. Mm -hmm. What made you notice the need for this? So what would happen is uh, someone would submit a pull request and there would suddenly be, uh, you know, just dozens and dozens of comments coming in mm -hmm. that were, you know, just kind of difficult to keep track of, and often were maybe talking about things that didn't necessarily need to be reviewed as a part of that pull request or addressed. You know, maybe things that could be caught by a linter, um, right? You know, and other tools that are a little bit easier to receive feedback from, you know, like it's, it's easier to have a tool tell you, you know, your uh, spacing is off than have me tell that to you. Right. And really that seems like the spacing is off. That's kind of the, like, if you need to deliver that feedback, that's kind of like not what you want to lead with. Right. If you don't have linting in place, like make that the last, like after all other issues are sorted out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it sounds like what you're describing is people who kind of swarm over uh, a pull request, each with their own kind of pet peeve issue. Yeah. And then, you know, you're just left with this long list of comments to go back and address. And mm -hmm. you're pushing up more and more commits. And it's just, you know, by the end of it, you, you could have more than 100 comments on this PR. Right. And you've thought that you were going to get this done in a day or two. And then, <laughs> you know, suddenly it's the end of the sprint and it's like, Oh, finally I get to merge this. Right. And typically, I mean, it's actually, in my opinion, a anti-pattern when you have like 10 merges that happen on the second to last day of the sprint or the last day of the sprint, there's I always agree. issues with that. Right. I mean, yeah. you really ideally you are, are merging code throughout the course of the sprint. 
it kind of like defeats the purpose almost. I mean, I guess you're doing your integration in in, in shorter periods, but even so, it's just uh, tons of stuff is bound to break when everybody's pushing and right and everyone's rushing. Yep. So, so what 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 would happen in that situation in in your experience? So you had this pull request that a lot of people are commenting on. Some of the comments were, you know, could be addressed by lint uh, linters. Like, would you go, would you guys go back and actually implement linting? Like, did did that happen? Like, would you put linting in place so so that you would have consistent formatting uh, on the projects to reduce reduce that that kind of feedback? Like, what what, what would be the, like the resolution or a way to improve on that process so you could actually get better feedback. So yes, we did install a linter, and that's something that you can either run locally or you can also run in your continuous integration environment. And it's really good to run it locally first because then you can just catch it before you even submit the PR. And that was something that, that definitely helped cut down on these sorts of comments and even debates over style. Uh, you just have this one thing that is maintaining that style or rather telling you when you're wrong for you. And then you don't have to have all these comments coming in as you submit your PR. Um, and another thing that we would do is uh, we would use, you know, even beyond just things like white space and trailing new lines and, and those sorts of issues, sometimes you would have some of these issues that would come in that wouldn't necessarily be a trailing new line or white space issue or, or something like that, but it would be purely someone's sense of style. And in those situations, we came up with a bit of a, a standard where if you wanted to make a comment that was strictly style, that wasn't something that you necessarily wanted to block the pull request over, we would use emojis uh, that had specific meaning. So in our case, uh, we would use either a, a beer emoji or the cocktail emoji, uh-huh. uh, kind of say, here, take this with a drink. You know, this is <laughs> not something that's super serious. It's a suggestion, you know, here, uh, let's, let's discuss this over beers. <laughs> that seems like I a like really that. nice approach. Yeah. It's a nice approach to, uh, like friendlify the the actual pull request right because there's uh because people can get really I, I think another way people say this is like when you say that it's not a belief that i strong hold, hold strongly like how does that how does that go charles i've heard you uh, say it a couple of times it's a, what's strong opinions weekly held yes mm. right you're you're kind of making an assertion uh, about the way things ought to be but or missing often missing from that is how important it is to you you know you've made this thing like it should be like this you know, that's a very black and white statement, very firmly cut between white and wrong, but how important it is to you uh, if it goes the other way uh, is is often missing from the conversation. And so, Joe, what would happen? So once you so you, you made this change, like, did you see a shift in the in the kind of feedback you were getting? Like, what was what did it look like after this? Yeah. So after we started implementing the ideas of like putting on emojis to signify things that were were not super serious, um, it became a, a lot easier to just pick through all those comments and uh, to find the things that I really needed to address. And mm-hmm. it was a lot faster. Like I was just able to address these very specific problems and do that first. And then if I had time later, come back and address those uh, style issues. Right. Well, was the the kind of the good feedback 
there the whole time, but it was just obscured by the noise of these kind of exterior issues or side issues? Or did you find that because people's thoughts were more given over to uh, the heart of the matter, that you actually got more comments directly relating to kind of the meat of the implementation? I think it was really more that the uh, the good comments really were buried in there. You know, a lot of times when you see critical comments that seem to be petty, that can really trigger your emotions. Mm. And so I, I feel like a lot of the times uh, the the emotional state that we would get into would prevent us from seeing the, the good comments that people were leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would get a, a little uh, a little too angry about things that really weren't that big of a deal. Mm. Would the tension kind of noticeably rise? Yeah, like I actually remember several instances in my job where um, this is when I was working in office in, in the same room as all my coworkers. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my coworkers would know that I was reading his review by the number of size that were coming out of me. <laughs> so yes, I, I definitely, yeah, like had this, this reaction that, that people could, could tell. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like implementing things like these emojis uh, definitely helped. They didn't always fix everything though. One thing that would happen too is even after filtering out kind of the noise comments and getting into the the meat of the matter, we would still wind up in situations where we would have, I would want to use one design pattern and Mm. uh, another engineer would come along and say, no, you should do something different. And uh, we would have these arguments. Right. And those are harder to resolve too, because those are strong opinions, strongly held. Yes. Um, so, you know, once you've, but, but I mean, it's, it's still a step forward, right? And that you've eliminated the passionate arguments about the strong opinions weekly held. And so you're able to now grapple with how do you resolve these arguments of these stronger opinions that are more strongly held? Yeah. And part of the, the way that we handled this was we came up with a way of being able to have a debate about something on a pull request, yet also keep in mind that we're working under deadlines and mm-hmm. that, you know, ultimately it might not be that big of a deal. I, I, I don't know if, you know, you, you, you experienced this, but there's this uh, kind of a feeling where, you know, you have a deadline that you want to reach. And it's like this feedback is kind of like not really helpful to that end goal. But at mm-hmm. the same time, there is there's feels like a trade-off where you're like trading off quality by accepting something that people don't agree with being fully like ready yeah but then there's uh, i guess the, uh, the tests seem to be like you know you have some tests and the tests are passing so thumbs up <laughs> yeah. yeah you know there might be well so here's the thing that this this thought just occurred to me when i heard that is when we are reviewing code, it's probably the most important code to review is actually not the implementation, but it's the tests, right? Because why do people yeah. get so why do people get so care mad about the code being right? It's because they know that how expensive it is to get it wrong. 
Okay. And we all have our different opinions of what's right and wrong and what's going to cost us more. But we're at the end of the day, we're all trying to save us, save ourselves and our team pain in the future. And we're, you know, the, the, the tool that we have to do that is the code review, right? We're trying to make sure the code is quote unquote good. But usually what ends up happening, and I know I'm certainly guilty of this, is I'm focusing on the implementation and I look and I say, oh, yes, there are tests. I don't really look at the test and say, is this a good test? Because a good test is going to lower that cost that we're so afraid of in the future and that drives us to want to make sure the code is as close to what we conceive of as perfect as it's likely to get and still hit our deadline. It sounds to me like maybe what we really ought to be doing is reviewing the quality of the test, because if you have an excellent test, then the code, the shape of the code almost is uh, unimportant or changing the shape of the code, more importantly, is very cheap, right? So if you do find that the, the implementation is suboptimal, the cost of rejiggering it into a better configuration is going to be very low. Yeah, like I've discovered so many times where you are running a test that was written previously, either by somebody else or by yourself, <laughs> and you realize that the test is testing the wrong thing entirely. Yeah, coverage is spotty, right? It covers 10% of your yeah. cases. Coverage um, is spotty. It can also, you might have a, a stub or a mock in there somewhere that is hiding something mm -hmm. uh, that you weren't counting on. Or it could just be, you know, you pull up this screen and, and test the that it saves, but you're not really testing what it's saving. Right. Yeah. Can I actually proffer a suggestion, at least that I'm going to try and hold myself to going forward, is that when I review a pull request or some change, proposed change to a code base, I'm going to review the test first. Ooh, that's a great I'm gonna, idea. I'm going to try and see. I'm going to try and start with the test, and avert my eyes from the implementation. No matter how curious I am, how this person accomplished the solution, I'm going to hide from the solution and focus on the verification. And if I have faith first and foremost in the verification, then my faith in the implementation is secondary. Mm. No, Charles, I really, I really like this. I think this is really actually. I think it'd be really interesting to try this out and see what kind of impact it creates. But it makes me think that there is actually something really useful in here uh, in terms of providing feedback. Because the challenge is that when you're giving feedback to someone on a pull request, ideally that feedback is going to be useful and it's going to give a person something to think about in regards to the work that they did. And you know, I think a good way of pushing the work back onto the person in a way that they allows them space to like internalize what uh, internalize like what they need to do is identifying test cases that might be missing, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. because it's like you, because a lot of times uh, we test happy paths, mm -hmm. right, and then we don't test the things that we didn't think about, and that's where the devil is in the details, right? It's in the it's in the things that we don't test. Those are the kind of problems that we're trying to prevent with having good code. But really, the best way to kind of flash those things out is to make sure that you have the right test coverage for it. So, yeah, I think if you add to that, like just when you're looking at pull requests, it's like, well, is the test coverage missing the following cases and actually surfacing that? I think actually like I'm thinking of like, you know, a danger task 
uh, so the danger is a tool for adding information to pull requests. So like it will, it's a kind of automated mechanism to comment on pull requests. And so like I'm thinking like having something that does what just does, like just has this thing where they will check based on the last git commit, it will figure out what are the tests that have been added since the last commit. And then it will actually like show you. So when you run tests, it only runs the tests that you kind of imp- uh, impacted, which could be used to surface. And something like that could be used to surface tests that were written in this commit. I mean, we also have that information in, in the actual commit itself, but being able to see these are the tests that were written or added and then you could like use that and figure out like well, what what else is missing from this. This could be like a way to kind of add on to this process something a little bit more automated, so you could actually highlight this information very easily in the commit itself. Yeah, I was. It's funny. My my mind was wandering off towards GitHub. Like, when to use Danger and when to use uh, GitHub Actions. GitHub Actions have been kind of like brewing and fermenting in my mind. Yeah, one nice thing is that, I mean, again, danger is a little awkward in that it creates one single commit at the top. Like it creates a comment first time you commit, and then it keeps pushing information into the comment, which shows up at the top of your comment thread. Right. But that's not how you read comments, right? You read like top to bottom. You don't read top to bottom to top, right? And so I think one nice thing, the nice thing about the actions is that because it's using checks, like you have checks that actually is, part of a different area as part of the validation area as opposed to right. part of the actual common conversation. Mm-hmm. This seems like a more appropriate place to put the information rather than the first comment. Yeah. So do we decide on kind of what the ultimate resolution is for when, when you have these higher order conflicts? Yeah. So that's one thing that we came up with that I'm, I'm really proud of. And so what we do in at least at that job that I was at what we did in those situations was we said, okay, you know, if you've gone back and forth on this two or three times and there's still not an agreement as to what should be done or there's no compromise, what you should do is let the author of the pull request go ahead and merge that code. Uh, because we want to merge that code, get it out to production, make sure it's serving our, our users and our clients. And then what you want to do is take that conflict and record it somewhere to specify this interpersonal conflict, not a code conflict uh, or a merge conflict or anything like that. So you take this interpersonal conflict, uh, the, the topic that was being discussed, and you put that, we were just putting it in a Google Doc and leaving it there. And then every couple of weeks or maybe every couple of sprints, we would go through that Google Doc and just talk about topics that had come up. Um, Mm -hmm. And then really more often than not, what we would find is that we didn't care about the topic anymore. (laughs) Isn't it amazing how how time has a way of uh, cooling passion over things that really don't matter? Yeah. And for the things that did matter, we usually have like a really good discussion. And, you know, sometimes we even came up with something different entirely based on just having more people in the conversation and and thinking about this problem. I like this because there's a bit of process around it, right? There's actually like, it's kind of like a retrospective on pull request passions, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yes. Um, yeah, it sounds it sounds like a healthy thing to do for for a team, especially you know. And I think just 
allocating some breathing room to go through these kind of things could be really important cumulatively over time, especially. Yeah, definitely. So it's, I mean, it sounds almost like the pull request is then ongoing. You have this collaboration that happens kind of at the the front of the change, but then is rippling outwards and onwards um, and hopefully then has an impact on future changes, right? Like if you're disagreeing, so would you say that, would you qualify the 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 types of issues that end up living in this Google document as architectural issues or just, hey, I, this is the way we need to talk to each other um, and and this was off and we need to, to fix this or is it both? It was mainly more architectural decisions that mm-hmm. uh, were, was mm-hmm. coming up in this. Um, sometimes like code style issues as well. Not so much the interpersonal issues, like the interpersonal issues would come up during retros. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, because it, it sounds to me like it's not, then then you have like the added benefit uh, that your architecture does it, get to improve because clearly if there's some disagreement about this, then there's there's some sort of tension there. There's someone perceiving that some problem is not being resolved by a particular implementation. And so it's good to just at least surface this issue again and again. What was your experience with kind of revisiting the architectural issues? Um, was it mostly, well, this wasn't really an issue? Or is it, wow, I'm really glad we took note of this because now we have these three ways of thinking about things. And it turns out that given now, you know, three or four months more experience, this one, this is something that we should be doing. Yeah, it was definitely, uh, definitely a mix of both, but mm-hmm. kind of leaning more towards the the latter. Like, we're just glad that we we would bring things up. Um, occasionally, there would be one one or two topics that would come up that we still wouldn't resolve. And we would have to uh, agree to disagree on something. Or mm-hmm. uh, in, in some cases, I think we I think we would allow the one of the lead engineers to just make the final decision on something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was that was pretty rare. Mm-hmm. So apart from appealing to either time, the passage of time, or just kind of taking a brain dump of all the different architectural options, or deferring to a more senior engineer and just kind of asking them to step in and make the call, are there any processes that you can put in place, say, to kind of mechanically come up with a decision, like uh, any set of values that you can use as a ruler to kind of line up uh, a set of things to kind of attach attach weight to one particular uh, uh, solution. For example, you know, one of the things that I always think of is, you know, a lot uh, one when I have internal conflict about a decision, there's kind of a part of me that feels like this might be the right way and maybe in other ways the right way. And so one of a, a tool that I will use is what's internally consistent with the rest of the system, right? So even if I've had an insight that something really ought to be framed, one solution should be framed in a certain way, if there's another solution that's more internally consistent with the way things are existing, then, you know, it's it's I'll use that as, as a discriminator to say, okay, well, that's one thing that I can use to measure a solution against that I'm not emotionally tied to, right? It's kind of, it feels more objective. I can kind of pile 
and 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 if you have those tools, you can kind of pile them up and see which uh, which pile ends up being higher for each solution. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, like I I definitely lean more towards you know keeping things consistent with what's already there. Personally, I probably do that to a fault. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I need to to branch out a little more and get comfortable with possibly breaking something. But you you always need to weigh whether it's something that is acceptable to break. So like a lot of the systems that I've worked with involve money. And mm-hmm. it's really important that people either have money when they need it or are charged the, the correct amount. Um, mm-hmm. when you charge them <laughs> they and, get really yeah. mad when you when you uh, <laughs> when yeah, you charge it, them too much. <laughs> isn't it amazing? <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, it could be that you are are okay with breaking this other this other end of it, where you know you might charge them the, the correct amount, but the the fulfillment of that product or the service or, or whatever you're selling, um, you, you might have a little more wiggle room in that part of the code base where uh, if you break something, okay, somebody calls in and says it's broken and then you're just able to fix it. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else? If, if folks are struggling with the, the way their pull requests work or their code reviews work um, and they're experiencing friction and tension with their teammates, is there anything else um, they can do? What I would suggest is definitely look at the pull request template uh, feature that is in GitHub and make use of that. Um, Because what you can do with that is come up with several sections of the pull request template and say, these are the questions that we want to ask before we submit a PR. And if you have those questions and those sections ready to go on that template, and people read through that as they're making their pull request, they can often catch problems before they get to another reviewer. I can't tell you how many times I have submitted a pull request, started to write the description, and gone through these questions and realized, oh, this is wrong, or it's broken, or it's totally the wrong thing. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's funny, and... and I feel like you want to be asking those questions, not when you're submitting the pull request, but when you're before you're even writing the code. Um, yeah. But a lot of times we don't do that uh, until afterwards. And we're like, Oh man, you know, just this, this process of forcing myself to think about the problem in this way, or think about it holistically, totally recasts my implementation. Yeah. Things like how could this break after we merge it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a great question. Is that uh, one that's on your pull request? Oh, yes, like just definitely. Ima- like imagining the, the breakage scenarios? Yep. Mm. Yeah. Man, it's almost like you want to read the... What, so what are the questions that you have? Uh, so the ones that we have are, you know, first of all, what is this pull request? You know, how does it fulfill the requirements for the ticket? Mm-hmm. And then how could this break after we merge it? Are there any post-merge tasks that need to be run. So if you need to get on a server and run a task or, or do something after it has gone to production, that, that's a place to, to document that there. Mm-hmm. And then the final question is, how is this tested? 
Right. Yeah. That's a good one. And like I said, I think that's the one where I'm going to be starting when I'm both thinking about how my changes will be reviewed and how I review changes. Hmm. Maybe I should uh, consider moving that to the top position. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it is like I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about it and it does seem like we go straight, you know, straight to the implementation because that's what's fascinating to us. Yeah. Um, And so we might give way we have might have way too much bias for the importance of the implementation over the importance of the test. Cause I, I have to say, I am so guilty of when I'm reviewing, just looking for the fact that it has a test and not looking for what the test does. Yeah. And only referring back to the test and trying to understand how the test accomplishes it, the, it's, it's task. If I don't understand the implementation, I'm like, Oh, well, let me look at the test and see how it's, this code is used to the test that might be problematic. And so that, but I know that's definitely a little personal goal that's coming out of this podcast for me. Excellent. All right. Well, Joe, do you have any, uh, anything else um, that's, that's coming up, any talks, any meetups that you're going to any announcements, anything that you want to plug? Um, I have a website at jlleblanc.com. That's J-L-L-E-B-L-A-N-C.com. And -hmm. that's where I am. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. If you or someone you know has something to say about building user interfaces that simply must be heard, please get in touch with us. We can be found on Twitter at at the frontside or over just plain old email at contact at frontside.io. Thanks and see you next time. <laughs>